0: Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 28th of August 2022, 11 o'clock service. Tom Butters speaking on Why I Am a Christian. Very great pleasure to be able to speak to you today and to share my story about why I'm a Christian. It's such a privilege to have a voice and to be heard while so many Christians around the world are unable to do so for fear of persecution, so thank you. My testimony today focuses on listening to God's guidance and following in paths that he lays out for one. I feel like I need to start by saying that I've had a very privileged life and a very privileged upbringing, but even a privileged life is not necessarily one without struggle. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, in the USA, on the 26th of December 1992, not wanting to overshadow another very important birthday around that time. I was born to John and Jodie Butters, two young South Africans who had recently emigrated to America on account of my dad's job. He was an accountant and my mum was a teacher who taught maths and English at high school. My elder brother was born almost three years earlier in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he now works in New York. I remain very close to all my family to this day. About six months after I was born in the United States, we all moved back to South Africa. However, owing to the rise of crime and the uh, difficult political situation across much of Africa at the time, my parents made the difficult decision to leave their homeland and move to the UK when I was about three years old. My father had a British passport, as did his father and his father before him, and so he was able to take us all with him to the UK as his family. Now, at the time, my father's company wouldn't allow him to transfer to the UK office, and told him if he wanted to move, he'd have to quit. And so, in a brave move, he quit his job and landed in the UK with his family, jobless. If asked about why he was so certain that moving to the UK was the right move, my dad would just say that he had a gut feeling. I know now that that gut feeling was in fact God's guidance, even if we didn't know it at the time. As with most South African immigrants at the time, as you might have noticed, We put roots down in Wimbledon. And there there is where we stayed for the next 26 years. Fortunately, my father found work quickly in the UK as an accountant, in fact, the same company which he had left in South Africa. We settled quickly into a happy life in a new country. Now, I grew up in a Christian household, but it was really my mother who drove this belief. My mum has always been a devout Christian herself, having grown up in a strongly religious South African family. And while my father has always been a deeply philosophical and somewhat spiritual man, in his adulthood he has always been what one might call an agnostic. Even so, when I was young, all four of us attended Emmanuel Church in Wimbledon every Sunday. As we grew, unfortunately, my brother um, began to lose his faith. And once he hit his teenage years, he no longer and never again had a relationship with the church. At the same time, my dad decided to stop attending church and instead put his mind to other pursuits. This just left my mum and me attending church for a number of years together. Throughout my childhood, teenage years, and indeed my whole life, I've always considered myself a Christian. However, as with many Christian children, I can see now that it wasn't until much later in life that my faith was really my own. I hadn't developed a deep relationship with God, and in many ways I took his works for granted. My first big challenge in life came when I was 11 years old. I was on holiday in South Africa, visiting relatives, fighting off lions, you know, the standard thing one does there. And it was at this time that I started becoming unwell. I started needing to pee constantly. It got to the stage where I couldn't last 30 minutes without having to pee. I was drinking a lot of water, soda, milk. I was thirsty, constantly, and I was losing weight. Now, I uh, give lectures to medical students occasionally, having um, qualified as a doctor myself, and if you were medical students, I would ask you what you think the diagnosis is, but I won't do that, I'll spare you. Now, a few weeks after my symptoms began, I woke up feeling exhausted. I felt like I could barely climb the stairs, and it was at that point my mum took me to the doctor. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I spent a week in hospital, and my life changed dramatically from then. No longer was I a carefree child allowed to run and play however I liked. I was a patient. I had responsibilities and medications tying me down. I couldn't go anywhere without my insulin, my glucose monitor, and some sugar tablets in case I had a hypoglycemia. I was taking four to six injections a day. Every meal came with a calculation of how much insulin I would need for the carbohydrate I was going to eat. Meal times had to come at very specific times my life was very regimented. And then there were problems with my friends and family. They all treated me differently. Family I hadn't seen in a while asked me endless questions about my diabetes and gave me endless pity. I didn't want any of this. I just wanted to be a normal 11-year-old child. At school, I became less popular and less cool. I didn't have much of a chance, to be fair. I was an awkward boy with diabetes, and my surname was Butters. Now, I suspect most of you don't know, but at the time, the word Butters was coincidentally being used as a slang term for ugly. Now, clearly, that's not correct, but anyway, (laughs) at least my wife says so. Um, I prayed constantly to God to cure me of my illness and return my life to me how it was. However, it soon became clear to me that my prayers were to go unanswered, or at least unanswered as I saw it then, it was at that time on reflection that my faith began to slip. In my teenage years, the church and God waned in importance to me. I stopped attending church regularly, favouring instead a lion. and while I still attended the optional weekly Friday chapel services at my school, and did become confirmed, I became what one might call a fair-weather Christian, a Christmas and Easter goer. Soon, in my teenage years, I was struck with yet another affliction, one I believe is far more insidious than type 1 diabetes. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is not what a lot of people see depicted in TV and movies. It's not just about liking things to be neat and tidy. Although the disease does manifest itself, in some, with an obsessive need to be clean. OCD is the presence of obsessive thoughts, which one can't stop thinking about, and worrying about almost constantly. These obsessive thoughts then couple typically with a compulsion, a kind of act with magical powers that assuages the obsession temporarily. This is often washing one's hands, turning switches on and off a certain number of times, or repeating phrases over and over again. So the cycle of obsessions followed by compulsions continues to strengthen and OCD manifests. My OCD started with a need to be clean and a fear of germs. I started washing my hands constantly, to the point of bleeding sometimes. The symptoms of my new illness waxed and waned over the coming years, and I would go through periods of trouble and then through periods of calm. But the disease never really left me, and it's been a facet of my life ever since. At the time, I couldn't see any reason why God should let me have developed another illness. I continued through my school years, And it was at around 15 years old that I decided that I wanted to do either medicine or veterinary medicine. And essentially, on a flip of the coin, I chose the former and have regretted it ever since. (laughs) That's a joke. I love my job. (laughs) Now, you might be wondering why I've got two pictures of some famous TV shows. I don't know. Has anyone watched House or Scrubs at all? Yeah, a few people. Fantastic. Good. Now, when in the interview for medical school, I was asked, why do you want to do medicine? Of course... I said, because I want to heal people, I want to help people, I want to learn about medical science. I didn't tell them the real reason, it was because I was addicted to these medical TV dramas during my teenage years, but there you go, I might not have gotten in. <laughs> Ask anyone from my generation of doctors and they will tell you this is what led them into medicine, and if they don't, they are lying. Now, I applied myself at school, and I must admit, with not insubstantial help from my parents and teachers... I managed to get good grades and I successfully uh, attained a place at Imperial College London to study medicine. My best and oldest friend, James, with whom I attended school since the age of seven, decided to follow me to Imperial to study medicine and thus our adventures began. Now it was in Freshers Week that my friend James introduced me to my now wife. These are a few pictures. In fact, the top left picture is uh, of. Uh, my second night um, we'd, we'd had a, some sort of freshers ball where we all dressed up in nice outfits and went and danced and my now wife Sarah is actually the um, blonde girl in the middle there. And it was in freshers week that my friend James introduced me to Sarah, my now wife. She was fun, beautiful and intelligent and she still is. I liked her immediately. Of course, I went to an all-boys school and had had very limited experience in talking to girls up to that point. Now, I'm very embarrassed about what I'm about to tell you, so please remember that, and remember that I went to an all-boys school. As Sarah and I walked down the street that first evening, I tried to get to know her. Sarah was dressed in a very nice outfit, and I wanted to compliment her. I wanted to say, you look lovely, or that's a beautiful dress. What I actually said was something along the lines of, I bet you like fashion. Smooth. Luckily, Sarah had a sweet spot for awkward, dorky guys. Now, much to my dismay, while I spent the next few months plucking up the courage to ask Sarah out on a date, she had already been asked on a date. And uh, this relationship of hers actually ended up lasting almost the rest of her six years at university. And it was very painful to me as it became clear upon reflection that I had actually fallen in love with her. Unable to be her boyfriend, I settled for the next best thing, her best friend. We had a great deal of fun together at university during lectures, but really for me, it was never enough. And I started to feel lonely, and I started to feel hard done by. For a number of other reasons at university, as perhaps many people feel, I began to feel lost and directionless. I felt that I was missing a key part of life, and I felt like that, uh, I, I felt that the part of me that was missing was a relationship with a woman. Well, in fact, I was missing a key relationship, but not the kind I'd initially thought. Also, and this is now one of the things I truly regret in life, at the start of university, I didn't join the Christian Medical Fellowship. I only joined them much later into my degree. I didn't join them in part, to my shame, because of something a friend had said to me, he said, don't join them, you don't want to be seen as weird, do you? It's a source of great shame to me that I actually listened to him, and in fact there's a part in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis which relates perfectly to this, and I'm sure many of you have read the book, but for those who haven't, I really, really recommend reading it. During the next few years at university, I went through some ups and downs. My OCD hadn't left me and slowly began to pervade through most aspects of my life. I became extremely fearful of exams and as a result I began to study very hard. As a kind of side effect to my anxiety, I achieved very highly at university. I was awarded a number of prizes and came top in the class of my bachelor's degree. These achievements gave me some sense of satisfaction. I felt very proud of myself but soon after each success I'd feel empty again. I felt alone. The woman that I loved was with another man and I had no real goals. I had no real relationship with God. During my fourth year at university, my OCD began to take a turn for the worse. At times, I wouldn't be able to go outside of my room or my house for fear of contamination from germs. I don't know if any of you have seen the film The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, but for those of you who have, I was just a little short of that scene with the milk jars. You'll know what I mean if you've seen it. And of course, having OCD and a chronic fear of germs doesn't lend itself very well to being a medical student. The amount of times I've been urinated on and other things is um, (laughs) distressing, to say the least. But anyway, that's another story for another day, maybe. As a result of my OCD, depression and anxiety set in as often it does with OCD. It became increasingly hard to function day to day at medical school, and as is so often the case with mental health disorders, I felt the need to hide it, felt embarrassed of it. Nothing seemed to go right for me those days, and things got quite dark. I won't go into too much detail, but bad thoughts started circling my mind. My mental health fluctuated during the following years, and I was able to experience times of enjoyment in university, but generally I was not in a great place. Fortunately, this is where the story gets better. One day, seemingly out of nowhere, one of my more peripheral friends invited me to attend her church and a Holy Trinity Brompton plant church called St Albans. This was the church where most of the Christian medical fellowship attended regular services. I agreed to come with her and this is where my life changed forever. I felt immediately welcome. Happy faces greeted me with warmth and care The church was different to the one that I grew up in. It was less formal, more accessible to the likes of me. The services started with 15 minutes of singing and praising God with people raising their arms up to him. It seemed unusual to me, but it felt good. When years down the line, I asked my now very close friend what had compelled her to ask me to come to her church. She said that she felt that God was telling her that I needed help and she was right. Now my problems didn't immediately go away. But I did feel like a weight had been lifted and a load had been shared. I started listening to hymns and saying prayers often, especially when I felt low or anxious, and this began to help. I started reconnecting with God, and I finally began to welcome the Holy Spirit in again. In a bid to reconnect with my faith at that time, I decided to attend the Alpha course at the church. While much of the course was geared to those who hadn't had a background of being raised in a church community, some of the sessions really connected with me. In particular, I remember one that changed my life forever. Still feeling quite lost about what the future held, one seminar seemed like it had been designed just for me. It was about listening to God's plan, taking yourself out of the driver's seat and following God's path, which he has laid out for you. Before then, I don't think I'd really ever truly heard God speak to me, but from then on, everything changed. God's plans began to make sense to me, both prospective and retrospective. And I could, often hear me telling, uh, I could often hear him telling me which choices he was guiding me to make. I had rediscovered my faith and it had become my own and from that point on, I resolved to listen to God and follow his path wherever it led, trusting that it was the right way. Now, not everything was simply easy from this point on, and certainly there have been hardships, but I was in a much better place and much more resilient frame of mind to deal with them, and I felt great love for God again. No longer did my well being depend on my achievements or passing exams. Something my uncle, who was a reverend in South Africa, used to tell me resonated over and over again in my mind. He would say, people who put money or power on their pedestal are reduced to nothing when they lose it. People who put God on their pedestal can never be reduced to nothing, as God will never fail. At the end of medical school, whilst studying together finals, that's us at graduation there outside the Royal Albert Hall, great venue, as if from nowhere, Sarah professed her love for me. Now she had broken up with her boyfriend at the time and um, interestingly her granny said that she prayed constantly because her boyfriend at the time was not a Christian. Her granny prayed constantly that Sarah would find a different man. Now, prayers do work. (laughs) Um, Of course, I still felt the same way about her. I loved her completely and from that moment on, I knew that God was telling me that we were going to get married. I decided at that point I was going to propose, of course I wanted to wait a couple of um, months not to seem too keen, I'd learned a bit about being cool at university. Now Sarah and I began dating straight after final exams, and then we spent a wonderful time in Japan on what's called an elective, an elective is essentially after medical school you're qualified, you go and you work in another country for three or four months to get a view of medicine elsewhere in the world, and we chose Tokyo, Japan, it was exotic and interesting. We spent a wonderful time there. I was working at St. Luke's Hospital in Tokyo, which has this beautiful French chapel you can see that's actually been moved. It's an old Gothic chapel that's been moved from France. When the initial uh, missionary who set up St. Luke's Hospital in Tokyo moved there, he had it shipped over stone by stone. It's stunning, and they hold services there. The population of Japan has a fairly small Christian contingent, but it's growing there. Thank God, it's growing there. And this is one of the real I suppose bolsters of their community. They hold regular Japanese services uh, with Japanese ministers and the occasional English minister to come and translate for the likes of me. Um, We had an incredible time, Sarah and uh, I, in Japan, doing the things we loved, like hiking and eating and growing in love together with God. There's a number of lovely photos of us in Japan. About eight months later, I proposed to Sarah on the canals of Venice. I proposed on a bridge I later found out was called Ponte Storto. Now, I don't know if any of you speak Italian, but that, in fact, means crooked bridge. Now, I didn't know that at the time. I may have chosen a slightly more romantic location, but there we go. As I recall, when I proposed, when I knelt down on one knee, Sarah's first words were, If this is a joke, I'm going to kill you. Well, I wasn't prepared to die at that moment, so here we are today, married with kids. (laughs) Soon after the elective was over, it was time for Sarah and I to cut our teeth as junior doctors on the wards. It was a difficult transition from being a medical student, don't worry, that's a dummy, that's not a real patient, um, to suddenly having a great deal more responsibility. My OCD began to flare up again, as it's prone to do in stressful situations. And unfortunately, once more, I became anxious and depressed. However, God's plan soon became evident again, and I felt compelled to speak with my educational supervisor. She was an incredible doctor who specializes in palliative care. I began to tell her about the anxiety I was having over the job, the difficulties I was having, overthinking medical problems, rechecking tests. And as I was saying that, out of seemingly nowhere, she interrupted me and asked, "'Are you a Christian?' Slightly bewildered by the question, I replied, yes. And from there, she revealed she was a Christian. And she introduced me to a Christian medical prayer group at the hospital who met weekly for prayer and support. She made me realize what a strong medical community and what a strong Christian community exists in the medical world world to this day. She also helped me to get the medical um, aid I needed. And I was then able to cope a lot better on the ward. Ward work was still tough, and my OCD meant that I often stayed late after work, double-checking test results and rechecking my work. I did also find, however, that my early experiences in life as a patient gave me a somewhat unique advantage. I was able to empathise better with patients, and develop a real connection with them. I even had the opportunity to counsel another recently diagnosed young diabetic who was feeling lost, much like I was when I was diagnosed. Suddenly, God's plans were becoming clearer to me, and prior negative experiences in my life were being translated to real-world positive effects. Now, I think that I was a good ward doctor, although it became clear that with my mental health troubles and my difficulty managing my blood sugars on on calls and night shifts, ward-based medicine was not a sustainable career path for me. I was once more at a loss of what to do, worried about my future, what medical specialty could I cope with, One day, God dropped a solution to my problems into my lap. Someone in passing mentioned to me, completely coincidentally, about the specialty of histopathology. Now, this predominantly, for those who don't know, consists of diagnosing and analysing cancer using microscopes, special stains, and lab work. Now, sometimes hearing God's plans is more difficult than at other times, but to me, this was crystal clear. It just felt right. I spent half a day shadowing histopathologists in a pathology department, learning what they did. And I was convinced that this was the job for me. Now, without any prior experience in the specialty, I applied for the training program. I interviewed and I got the job. Really, I had no idea what the specialty would entail, but I can tell you this. I never since doubted the decision. I love my job. I'd found a rewarding job, and I thank God all this time for his guidance. My OCD currently is the best that it's ever been, and I no longer fear going to work. Now, just prior to starting my specialty training in histopathology, Sarah and I got married. We married in Norfolk, near her hometown, and it was at that time the happiest day of my life. Now, you might be wondering why the picture in the top left, she's recoiling in what seems like horror. That was at the time where I very boldly announced, I will, interrupting the minister. Um, halfway through him asking me, do you promise to, and of course everyone laughed. I was mortified with embarrassment and Sarah was cringing at the uh, sight, but it made for a lovely photo. Unfortunately, the happiness of the wedding was somewhat short-lived. Unbeknownst to us, shortly after Sarah and I left the wedding reception, my mother collapsed and began experiencing double vision and a terrible headache. She had assumed initially it was a very bad migraine, for which she's prone. Fortunately, her cousin, who is an ophthalmic surgeon and an expert on double vision, was staying in the hotel room opposite her, another part of God's plan. He diagnosed her quickly as having a more serious problem and arranged for her to be taken immediately to hospital for a scan. She underwent surgery to clip a bleeding aneurysm that had burst Sadly, a major uh, stroke occurred during the operation and she had to spend two weeks in neuro-intensive care unit and then a further five months in grueling physical therapy and stroke rehabilitation. Since then, sadly, she's been plagued by complex neuropsychiatric complications, including conditions known as derealization, functional visual loss, depression, and physical problems like hemiplegia. 50% of people who experience a burst aneurysm don't make it to the hospital. A significant component of those who do make it to the hospital never make it out of surgery. So we thank God that my mum has come through it all with the functionality that she has. It is sometimes difficult to see the reasons for God's plans at the time. And part of me is still wondering why this had to happen to my mum. What I will say is part of God's plan did become clear. I won't talk much about it it is really my wife's story to tell. But during medical school a number of years earlier, One of her brothers experienced the exact same condition, a burst aneurysm, at the age of 29. Now, the incidence of these aneurysms bursting is approximately one in every 20,000 people per year. It's a very rare condition, and the odds of it happening to my wife's brother, as well as my mum, are extremely low. But given their previous experiences, Sarah and her family were able to counsel us and guide us through some very troubled waters. We prayed and spoke with them and through it, we made it as a family through the difficult time ahead. Sadly, our situation was made harder at the time by my dad's diagnosis of prostate cancer. He had to undergo surgery about a month after my mum's aneurysm and required significant care himself afterwards. His cancer sadly came back very quickly after the operation and he had to undergo further hormone and radiotherapy. Thankfully, God gave us strength to carry on as a family. And after additional treatment and a great deal of prayer, my dad's condition improved. And he went into remission. Now, of course, in early 2020, shortly after Sarah and I got married, we decided to try for a baby as it's something that we always wanted to do, start a family. We were nervous, but excited. I'm not sure if anyone feels ready ever to start a family, but something inside of us... God was telling us that it was time. Of course, then we were still living with my parents in Wimbledon, trying to save some money, working as doctors. We knew we needed our own space and decided to start the gruelling process of house hunting. After three months looking for houses, having a number of offers fall through, and our forever house and beloved houses slipping through our grasp, we felt disappointed and exhausted. We were also painfully aware that our mortgage offer, was rapidly running out, and soon we wouldn't be able to purchase a hospital, uh, a, hospital a, ho- uh, a house, <laughs> medical things on my brain, a house at all. We needed to find a house fast, and we were at a loss of what to do. But we kept telling each other to trust in God and that he would provide. One day, on a whim, I searched online once more, as I'd done many times before, for a suitable house. A new result popped up at the top of the screen. It had just been put on the market. It looked perfect. It wasn't in the area we had wanted to move to initially, but in fact it turned out to be a much better one. It wasn't the house we thought we had wanted, but the house that God knew we needed. The owners wanted to sell as soon as possible as they were moving to to their other house for their retirement on the south coast, and the deal was done in record time. We completed the day before COVID lockdown would have prevented us from moving into our uh, our new house and scuffering the entire plan. And six months later, Matthew, my son, was born. He's been a source of joy and fatigue ever since. Shortly after moving into the area, Sarah and I decided we wanted to put down roots. We wanted to find a church community where we could grow together and grow in our love with God. We were walking around the local area of New Malden, trying to get a better feel for it, and we walked past Christchurch. We loved the look of the church building, and we decided to listen to some of the Sunday services which were being done online at the time. Now, Nathan Larkin was preaching at the time, and we were captivated. We decided that at that time, this was the church for us. We've loved being welcomed into this church community, and we're very grateful. And I've even starred in a very high profile Easter performance, which has really bolstered my Hollywood career. It's been over two years since we moved to this area and over that time things have slowly improved for my mum and my dad. My dad is thankfully as of two weeks ago in remission for two years. My mum has excelled in her physical therapy, strengthened by her faith in God. A few months ago they made the big decision to move back to their home country of South Africa to try to live out the rest of their lives in peace. They left last Monday And we're all very nervous about how it will go. They've lived in the UK for almost 30 years now. But I know that God is looking after them. And in fact, I'm quite sure this is all part of God's path for them. And I'll tell you why. Before my parents even formally put their house on the market, they were contacted by an estate agent. He wanted to know if they were thinking of selling the house. They said, well, actually, funnily enough, we are. An offer was made on it the next week at the asking price, and it sold in record time. My parents then had to deal with the fact that there were tenants in um, my grandmother's old house, which they had inherited in South Africa, and they were worried about asking the tenants to move out before their term. Before they did that, the tenants sent an email saying, I'm very sorry, but we'd like to move out. We've just found a home that we want to buy. Without having to ask, they left. Even my brother, at the time, who is not religious, admitted to me that this was in his own words spooky <laughs> to me this was clearly god's sign that it was meant to be and i have faith that they will enjoy and relish their time in their old home country through following god's path and rediscovering my relationship with him my life has become so much more fruitful and meaningful i thank god for everything that he's given me a wife a son another baby on the way, and a new loving community in church. Well, I say new, we've been here for a while. I also remain mindful that our successes and our possessions are not really our own, but truly uh, belong to God. Things are not always perfect or easy, but knowing that God is at the helm has given me far more resilience to bear the brunt of hard times. Only God knows the future, and often what we think we need is not what God knows we need. Oh, I will continue to listen to God's guidance and follow the path that he sets out for me. Now, I know I've spoken for a long time, and I apologise for that. I'm prone to ramble. But I just want to talk very briefly about my grandfather. I couldn't work out how to shoehorn him into this presentation, so here he is. That's him there. That's me as a child and him building his house. He built his own house in South Africa. And on the right of the screen... Um, There we are in Turkey. It was a lifelong dream for him to go and see the old Christian caves uh, where the Christians used to hide in Turkey for fear of persecution from the Romans. And uh, we realized it shortly before he actually passed away. He was an incredibly wise and considered man, a classicist, a sculptor, a painter, a devout Christian. He served as head of religious broadcasting for South African B.C. for a number of years and served as subdeacon of his local church for his whole life. My father-in-law once told me about a useful exercise while I was asking him for advice for how to balance work and home life. He said, imagine your funeral. Who would you want to be there? What would you want them to say about you? Well, my grandfather passed away when I was about 16 and he meant a lot to me. A few months after Sarah and I married, I took Sarah to us uh, on honeymoon to South Africa. We made a trip to my grandfather's old hometown and to his old church where he is buried. His tombstone reads as follows. Here lies William Chalmers, a true servant of God. I would like people to say the same about me. Thank you very much for listening to me for so long. There's always more to say, but never quite enough time to say it all. So please, any time, feel free to contact me and speak to me. God bless and thank you all for listening.